Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Have a great day. Good evening. My name is Runar, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Runar! I'm used to being able to quiet people down when I introduce myself, because most people can't pronounce my name. <laughs> you did a pretty good job. So, yeah, I said I'm an alcoholic. Um, first of all, I'm from, I'm from Iceland. I started my drinking uh, when I was 12. And I'm not going to spend too much time on my drinking story, because it's too long in too many places and too many people. But... Um, the first eight years of my drinking uh, were kind of, well, I guess I was young, but if you're in AA, it isn't. Uh, uh, the first time I had a drink, something dramatically changed. I don't believe that I was born an alcoholic, and, and if I had never had a sip of alcohol, I probably would never become an alcoholic. But from the moment I had my first drink, uh, I, I was definitely an alcoholic, and that's all I wanted to do. So I spent my, my teens uh, trying to get booze. I'm just going to get rid of this. Um, drinking, recovering, or whatever it was. Um, uh, by the time I was 15, I, I would say I was a full-blown alcoholic, where uh, I would start drinking, and I wouldn't... I, I never knew when I would stop. Sometimes it was uh, just a night, and sometimes it was a weekend, or sometimes it was, you know, I think my first week staying drunk was when I was 16 years old. I started running, I'm not running away from home, but I started leaving because, you know, somewhere else was much better than where I, where I was. And um, uh, first time I was 15, um, I went to a boarding school. Well, you know, I was, and that's kind of part of my story. I was uh, kicked out of school. And I went to a uh, knowledge school, boarding school, which I was also kicked out of. Uh, and that's kind of my story goes that way. I, I went to a different town because I was, you know, didn't want to live where I was. I was 17, and they fired me from the job I was working, and they kicked me out of the town. So I decided to go to another country. I went to Denmark and went to school there. Well, actually, they didn't fire me out of the school, but they kicked me out of Denmark. But, um, <laughs> so by the time I was 20, my future was so bright. I couldn't keep a job. Um, I couldn't keep a place to live. I didn't know how to live. I just, you know, all I had was a lot of debt, a lot of people that uh, didn't care too much about me, and, and it was just miserable. Um, I didn't think I had a drinking problem, but I had some kind of an anger problem. And it seemed to go together, drinking and, and, and getting angry. So, so I, and actually at that time, June or May or something of 82, I was 20 years old, I started working in, in, a, in a restaurant. It was a fine dining restaurant, and we, did, we have a little bit different system back home. And a lot of European countries, actually, if you want to work in a fine dining restaurant, you have to go through an apprenticeship. So I signed up for that. Uh, and just this thing of, of putting on the, uh, on the bow tie and wearing the tuxedo, something happened. You know, and walking around with all that fine wine and the crystal and all that stuff. And, and then, you know, I actually had been, 
a commercial fisherman most of most of my life until then. And there's just the communication was totally different uh, on a fishing boat and a fi- fine dining restaurant. And it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't so much a problem with uh, um, uh, the, the, the customers, but my coworkers they didn't like the way I was. And I liked this new life. I liked the tie and I liked the stuff. And so, and I knew that I, you know, I would drink my way out of this and I would, I would, uh, you know, fight my way out of that job. And so I decided to stop drinking. And that was first, my first attempt. Somewhere in the summer of 1982, I went to my, went to my first AA meeting on December 6th, 1982. So, um, and this starts my second phase of my drinking, the drinking while in AA, <laughs> which lasted for about 12 years. Uh, <clears throat> every time I came in, I stayed for a year or more, the longest was two and a half. I was introduced to the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. It wasn't until 1994 that I was introduced to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and those two are completely different things. They go well together, but they're two separate things. Uh, I did everything I was told to do when I came into AA. But a lot of the things I was told to do just didn't have anything to do with being an alcoholic, you know. Uh, take a walk and think about your feelings or, you know, just talk about it, whatever it is. Um, a lot of different things that just didn't make any sense, but I did them though. And, and one thing that I always did when I came into AA was, I wanted to look sharp, and I wanted to have a job, and I had to have a car, and I had to have a girlfriend and a job, and whatever. And I always waited for that recognition that somebody would walk up to me and say, yeah, you're okay. You're going to be sober. And that was kind of, you know, that was the thing. And then I could relax. And and every time I got drunk, I was, you know, the term in AA, I guess, is stark, stark rain and sober. Um, one of the times I remember, I was working in a restaurant, uh, the waiters, we had our own, we owned, owned the booze, bought it from the house and then sold it, and I opened this bottle of rum. It was nine o'clock, ten o'clock, whatever. Hour later, I had drank the whole bottle. It's a fifth of rum. I had been sober for a year at that time. And it didn't make any difference. And I didn't think about it, you know, until much later. Um, I ended up with a gallon of vodka and uh, somewhere out in, uh, out in town, and when I was down in shoulders of that, that's when I finally you know, relaxed. And this tells me that the condition I was in, it, you know, it, it kind of, the insanity comes to mind. I had no idea. I knew, and I was certain of this, that if I just figured out how to drink, I would be okay. And I also figured out that if I just... If I had the right job, you know, the right girlfriend, I don't know. It's just, I, I, I was so certain that there was this thing that would make it okay. And I chased that. Um, and the drinking was, you know, I never believed that the drinking was really a problem. It's just how I drank it. I just could figure out how to do that. I had this... Um, I'm not gonna spend too much time on my drinking story. It's, you know, I end up, I moved to Norway after I'd been sober for a year another time, and this is in 87, May 2nd, 1987, and I started drinking May 2nd, 1987. I stayed drunk for, uh, for four years, and, um, stopped drinking in 91, back to AA. 
And when I stopped drinking, then um, I remember waking up and it was like the first thing I, I sensed was my liver. I was like, yeah, okay, it's time to do something. Um, and and there was, a, I guess, a physical reason I was starting to do. I was pretty heavy and, you know, not feeling good and whatever, and, you know, and really tired. And everything was, I had a good job, a well-paying job, and, and I was keeping it. And, of course, I had the perfect Al-Anon, and she was just, she was just making it all working, you know, and she was paying the bills and she was keeping a track of me and she was making sure that I came home and she was making excuses for me and it was just the perfect world, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and I wouldn't have lasted that long without her help. So, June 24, 1991, I stopped drinking again. And I stayed sober for two and a half years and in the meantime, uh, I started the process of coming over to the States in the 93 September, actually September 11, it is strange, 1993, uh, we moved to, to, to the States. And I'm, you know, this, this, uh, thing of not having, uh, any mental defense against the first drink, I know that feeling. I know how that feels. Then that started happening then in September, October of 93. I just started moving towards a drink. I knew I was going to drink, and I knew I couldn't do nothing about it. I had no defense. And always what I did with her was I, I started telling her, I started convincing her, I started selling her the idea that now, you see, we're finally here in the States, you know. It's a different country, you know, and, and I've been sober for two and a half years. This is going to be totally different. <laughs> this time, I can handle it. And to prove it, went to this place called the Spot in, in La Jolla, California. And I had, yeah, Mike knows the place. And I had a <coughs> shot of Jim Beam. Nothing happened. Three days later, I was in the bar. I was working in the restaurant across the street. I was in the bar, and I'd been there for two and a half hours. My bar tub was 20, you know, 20 drinks. And that's what it was, you know, for the next few months. Every time I came to work, 11.30, and I, and I stayed there for two and a half hours, and I had 20, 25 drinks. And um, I drank every day. I got up in the morning, and I went across the street and had a bottle of wine and a couple of cognacs, and then I went to work, and I started drinking at work. And I drank you know, through the night, and then when I was done working. And I January 21st, I started drinking. February 16th, I uh, met a woman in the bar and, and I went home with her and I never came back to my wife again. I had this fantasy of how, how, how my perfect drinking life was going to be and it was going to be me in a tuxedo. Two women on each side. <laughs> and drinking champagne. You know, and it was just, that was the picture perfect fantasy of, of how it was going to be when I figured this thing out. So my last drink, See, I was close. I almost made it. When I woke up June 24th, 1994, I was wearing a tuxedo. And I called my new to be ex wife. <laughs> <laughs> she, so she's on the other side of the phone, and I actually woke up in my ex wife's house. So there's, the two women were there, the tuxedo was there. <laughs> the champagne was probably some of it still in my system but um, it wasn't exactly the way I imagined so there I am and I always you know because I was 20 when I came in and, and, uh, and a lot of people said you know, you, you know you're too young and I, I believed that for, for you know 
for the next five years, I believed that I was too young to stop drinking. And I realized at 32 that I wasn't. Um, so the one that I wanted to live with, she said, I packed your stuff and I don't want you back unless you stop drinking. So the one I didn't want to leave, live with, she didn't care. <laughs> so I told her I wouldn't drink so I could come back home. And um, I didn't want to stop drinking. I had no desire, not none whatsoever. Um, and for the next five or six weeks, every day I promised myself I'll drink tomorrow. Because I just knew that, you know, I couldn't stay sober, no way. Um, and it's a tricky deal because tomorrow never comes, you know, because it's today and I can drink tomorrow. And that lasted, like I say, five or six, five or six weeks. And it's like, what can I do? You know, I can go back to AA, but I know by now that AA doesn't work. So, but you know, it's a place to hang out, right? You know, if you want some cheap, Coffee and you know, some conversation. It's a place to hang out. I'd done that so many times. Not bad people. So I start going to meetings, and I did. And for the longest time, you know, that's just basically what I was doing. I was, I was, I was doing things I've been taught to do in AA. Just kind of talk about the mess in my head. You know, just take as much time as I could from a meeting and just talk about that mess and listen to other people talk about the same mess. <laughs> and hopefully, you know, come out of the meeting equally depressed as I came in or a little bit <laughs> a little bit less depressed, you know. Hopefully I wouldn't be more depressed. <laughs> then somewhere along the line there, a, a, a guy in a meeting catches my attention. Uh, he talked differently and he just walked differently and he just had something and I wanted what he had and I asked him where he was going to meetings and he told me it was men's meetings in, in, in uh, La Jolla California and I started going there and and I don't know about you I was uh, very intelligent when I stopped drinking probably one of the smartest people to walk, to, to walk this earth and I have a great understanding of very complicated formulas and things and suggestions and philosophies and stuff. And I just about knew everything. <laughs> and uh, strangely enough, I didn't impress these guys in the men's meeting. And I was actually in one of those meetings. I was actually told to sit down and shut up. I've heard, <laughs> I've heard a lot of people say that, but you know, I know the feeling. <laughs> I had a choice. I could go back to the meetings and hope that I would just stay equally depressed, or I could go to these meetings that had something that I wanted. And I debated, and I and I did go back, and I did try to do it the way I, you know, knew. And then I got convinced slowly. Uh, I think the term is desperation. Uh, you know, which is the best place I've ever been. You know, if you, if you haven't been there yet, you know, I hope so, you know, hope suddenly you make it there. Uh, so I started going after what, you know, what, you know, what they had. And, and, uh, 
it's strange thing. There was no way of no way for me to uh, get the word in the meeting. You know, I was, I was not going to be pointed out, and I couldn't raise my hand because they were all that were the meetings. You know, it's just whoever chair picked whoever spoke, and they never picked me. <laughs> they didn't know how much great many great things I had to say, but they never picked me. And something happened in, in one of these meetings. There were two men's meetings that actually was going to a lot. And, and one of them was fairly big, 120, 130 guys. The other was probably 60, 70. Half of it was from a treatment center. Um, but a strange thing happened in one of those meetings. Suddenly my head was quiet. Because I wasn't anticipating having to uh, let you know how much I knew because I knew nobody was going to call on me. And that was amazing. That was a spiritual experience. You know, the first time probably ever in my life my head was quiet. Um, there were a lot of different things and uh, uh, you know, a lot of different actions from a lot of different guys. I sure would hope, you know, it, it would be a great, great, you know, deal if, if just one thing from one person would be enough for an alcoholic to get it. But in most cases, that's not the case. And in my case, definitely not. Um, one of the, one of the gentlemen, he, uh, I tried to talk to him a few times and he just looked at me like I was, you know, I don't know what. He didn't want, he just didn't want to talk to me. He's like, turned away and started talking to somebody else. <laughs> one of them walked up to me, I think this is close to nine months. He walks up to me, and I told you earlier, I always waited for that uh, approval in AA, and and and, and I kind of I, I noticed that he was looking at me, and and I was expecting that you know he was going to be it. He was going to be the one that said, you know, yeah, you made it in AA, you're going to be sober. And finally, uh, he walks up to me, and you know, and says, it's time. I'm like, for what? It's time for you to get drunk again. And just walked away. And the truth is, you know, that that I'd been for these months and I hadn't done nothing. I'd pretended, pretended to know everything and, you know, and just played it cool or whatever it was I was trying to do. And he just, he knew what was up. And of course, I did the only thing an alcoholic would do. <laughs> I got huge resentment. <laughs> <laughs> They're so helpful, early in sobriety. <laughs> I started paying attention. I I, uh, I had made few attempts. I think there was two guys that I'd asked to be my sponsor, and it just didn't work out. And then I approached this gentleman, and, and he said, "No problem." And 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 the funny thing about that guy was uh, he never had time. I even called him here from Alaska. He started coming up here to fish, and, and so I could see the, 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 the phone calls, and the longest phone call was like five minutes. I never talked to him more than five minutes. And and I knew a few sentences by heart, and they were, you know, you you know what to do, call me anytime, it's in the book. You know, and that's basically what it was, you know. And, and what he told me there in the beginning was, well, it's all about step three. So you need to take a look at those first three steps and let me know when you're ready. And it's like, you know, I always knew what to do and I couldn't, I couldn't start, you know, I couldn't start asking for help. I always knew what to do. But something starts happening, you know, and, uh, and I think the biggest deal, 
See, there's one thing that uh, you definitely do, do not know when you get in here, and that's this idea. I might be wrong. <laughs> it's this idea of surrender. Uh, I heard people talk about it. But it took me a long time to figure out I hadn't clue. I had no clue what that was you know, all about. And there were a few things that I had a hard time saying. And definitely, and see, when I came into AA this time around, I didn't want to stop drinking, and, and I did not want to believe in God. And I'm a proof that, you know, that doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter. But I... I have this theory, and, and I test it regularly, uh, that all the people in AA that continue, that uh, achieve that happy, joyous, and free, they've all reached the same point. Well, desperation is kind of the road, but they've all reached that same point where in utter hopelessness, we cry out to God that we don't want to deal with, or we want to deal with, or whatever the you know, case may be, and say, help me. And um, and everybody, it seems like everybody has, has gone through that same moment. And it happened to me. Even though I didn't want to believe in God, and I didn't want to deal with God, I had to. I had no place left to go. I had tried everything else, and I tried to figure it all out. And I tried to do it, fix it, make it something. Strange thing happened. See, and of course, you know, not wanting to believe, believe in God, I did not believe in miracles either. So, uh, so when the thing happens that the obsession is removed, a miracle in my mind, because it never left. And, and some other changes that happened after that, you know, that moment when I asked God for help. I became willing to do whatever I had to do. I have, uh, I, I think I've lost it now, but I, I had the, I, the, the big book in Icelandic from 1984. Probably bought it in 1984. Um, so it's been with me. Many times I looked up at, you know, chapter five, how it works, you know, it's like, I, I would never read the manual anyway, but, you know, if you want to read the manual, you probably want to figure out how it works. And, uh, so I read that many times. And this time around, I figured out, maybe I need to start a little bit from the back in the book. <laughs> maybe that's a better idea. And I forgot my, I, I have a, when I started reading the book, you know, this time around, I had a pocket edition. It went with me wherever I went, you know, and, uh, and I started reading with a marker and, and it's kind of interesting because I can see what I was reading, the, you know, the first time around and there are three things that I marked. And, uh, the first thing is in, in, um, in the sixth chapter. That's where I started reading. Because that's into action. Everybody was talking about the action, 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 you know, I better read that chapter, you know. <laughs> the clue must be there, you know, for God's sake. And, but what they got in that chapter, they got this prayer. Can you believe it? They have to stuff them everywhere. So I marked that, you know, because I was going to point that out to somebody. And and now I'm reading the book backwards. So I, I go to chapter 5, and 
I don't know if there's a prayer there too. Come on, you know. Why does it have to always, you know, get that stuff mixed together? So I mark that. And then I'm reading, you know, now I'm reading the book backwards. So I get to chapter 4, and, and you know, if any of you have read chapter 4, if you're anything like me, you know, it's going to have a profound effect. But it didn't have any effect in the beginning until I started reading. I don't know if I can find it. should have taken my book because I can find it right, right away. But it says something about, um, yes, we, when you read the whole thing, Instead of regarding ourselves as intelligent agents, spearheads of God's advancing creation, we agnostics and atheists choose to believe that our human intelligence was the last word, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end of all. Rather vain of us, wasn't it? We have, we who have traveled this dubious path beg you to lay aside prejudice. No problem there. I have no prejudice whatsoever. I don't care what color, sexual preference, whatever it is. Not me. But there's a comma there, and it goes on. Even against organized religion. Damn. <laughs> Why do you have to do this to me? <laughs> At this point, I was convinced. So what I did, I started from the beginning. And it's a mar- remarkable book. And of course, I guess it helped because uh, I was convinced. I was walking around with, with uh, a lot of guys that um, I believed them. I believed they had been what they told me they had been, and I believed they were what they told me they were. I believed that it was genuine. I, I believed that they they had the life that that you know, and there was no doubt about it. It was just being around them was good, you know, and and they had something I wanted. So I believed that, and I know that you know it's through all the men that I gained that trust, you know, trust enough. To be willing to let go of whatever I had to let go of, to be able to uh, do what I had to do, and it's an interesting little book. And and I don't know. See, I, most alcoholics, I guess, a lot of alcoholics go through it. I, you know, I was a loner. I just I. I never, I don't know if you ever started a new job, you know, did you ever ask directions? No. You know, it's like, you know, do you know how to do it? Sure. And then I spent the day just sweating, figuring out how to do it, you know. I'm not going to ask anybody. <laughs> and of course, in AA, I'm going to do the same thing. But in this case, I have the sponsor that, you know, that I'm, I'm, I'm trying to ask him, and he always tells me, you, you know, you know what to do. It's in the book. It's in the book. And I have no idea. And for me, it's, it finally dawned on me, maybe that's what he was suggesting. Or, or, or maybe, maybe, uh, uh, what it was that he just didn't have time. But, but what I, what I think he was suggesting, or at least what it, the effect it was having on me was that whatever it is, wherever it is, I have no idea where it is in the book for you. I couldn't tell you to read, you know, even against organized religion, and that would make any difference for you. But that had a profound impact on me, reading that. So it's in the book, but I don't know what page, I don't know which line, but it's in the book for anybody. Gotta read it. Gotta read it. (laughs) Uh, So, I was raised in Lutheran religion, 
uh, stayed in church is not separated in Iceland. Um, and, and I had a, it was a passion. It was a passion. My hate towards Christian religion. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was suddenly preventing me to, uh, to move on. Blasphemy was a hobby. So I like to do the same thing with AA. There are certain things you don't talk about in AA. And, but that's my experience. I'm not sure how far I reached. Okay, I have to say this. Being able, the first time, to sit down and tell my deepest doctor secrets to somebody, and have them laugh at me, <laughs> that, that was freedom. When I was doing that fourth step and getting the same directions and getting tired of them, and you know what to do, it's in the book. Um, I finally figured out a few things. And uh, one of them was that it's probably a good idea if you want to understand the step you're working on is to read the step following. And uh, what they talk about in the fifth step is, you know, admit to God, Ourselves, you know, human being, the exact nature of my of, of my wrongs, you know. So I really realized that that's what I was looking for, you know, and uh, and I started looking for it, and and something strange happened. I realized that um, that I had always see. I thought I was because they talk about the sociopath, which once was called a psychopath, but now it's changed. Mm-hmm. Now it's a sociopath, and I thought I was a sociopath. I thought just I, I it, you know I just didn't see what was the right thing, uh, and I didn't know. I thought you know that's a sociopath, but I realized finally that no, I was not. I always knew, and I have always known the difference between right and wrong. It's just the fear was preventing me from doing what was right, and and for me that was you know that was one of the things I discovered in, in, in writing my first step, and that was amazing. Um, and the exact nature of my wrongs, it's it somehow, when I start seeing my, my defects, everything following becomes much easier because now I realize that people are pissed off at me because of what I was doing and, and my defects were causing all this behavior. I, uh, went through the steps. Did I understand all of it? No. No clue. Um, but my life was changed. My The obsession was removed. So I come up to Alaska. That was the second time I come up to Alaska in uh, probably 96. And I go out in the Bering Sea of January 96 for a, for a crab season. And on the first day of the season, I smash my finger. And um, bones and tendons are sticking out and... and, and I'm from Iceland. I'm a Viking. I'm not going to give up. <laughs> so I don't. And uh, I'm in pain. Um, I get tendinitis in my left hand, and you know, and I'm miserable. And and I start picking at this guy because I need an outlet. And uh, I call him all sorts of names. Uh, the only one I remember is probably the nicest one, Monkey Boy. But uh, <laughs> but somewhere somewhere in this whole whole process, I, I'm in his face, speaking loud, not too loudly so that everybody else can hear. 
and it suddenly dawned on me. He's from he's Mexican. Suddenly dawned on me. He doesn't understand a word of it was. Through my head, the thing, you know, character defect. Because I didn't read this twelve by twelve too much, but this time I decided, yeah, I'm going to check it out. And the first sentence in the sixth step. This is the step that separates boys from the men. Okay, I got it, man. I got it. So I found out that. They, when they wrote the book, they, they had so much faith in the book that they were willing to send it out. And uh, we talk a lot about that, you know, that you have to go to meetings, you have to have a sponsor. A lot of things you have to do, and I don't believe that. I think if you have an opportunity to go to a meeting, why don't you? And if you have an opportunity to work the steps with somebody, do it. But I was out in the bidding sea, for about six months, where I made maybe three three uh, meetings, all I had, which they say, say actually in the book, and, and, and I believe that, the sentence, you know, burn the idea in the consciousness of every man that he can recover regardless of anyone. All he needs to do is to clean house and trust God. And I believe that. And I believe that's the essence of the program. And that's what I need to do. I need to clean house and I need to trust God. I, I don't need anything else. Everything else is a bonus. So, June 24th, so, well, you know, it's later. But in 94, I get introduced to the program of Alcohols Anonymous. And I'm so convinced today that, you know, that there's so much difference between the fellowship and, 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 and the program. And that, that I have a responsibility, and not only responsibility, you know, because I've gotten a life that I never expected I would get. I was what they uh, categorize as a hopeless, helpless drunk. I don't know if, don't know if you know what a hopeless, helpless drunk is, but I imagine. <laughs> I did not believe that anything was going to change. But everything has. Um, AA, this idea, has given me something so worthwhile. I can never pay it back, and I'm so happy that I can't. I can make attempts, and I will. And I will continue to do whatever I have to do to carry the message, to do what has to be done in AA. I will be available for, to, for anyone, anywhere. And it's my responsibility. I have to do what I have to do. And, and I have to make sure. See, it's none of my business what everybody else do, does, but I have to make, make sure that the message, as I understand it, comes across because I know that that's how I got it that there were men that shared their experience, and they were totally different. And it's our common responsibility to make sure that the message is there, that we don't get stuck in in the wrappings, in how we do things, that that we're making sure that it, it's about al- another alcoholic talking to an alcoholic, or an alcoholic talking to another alcoholic. Um, What has happened? I started college now, 40. I was always on my way to college. <laughs> but it's taken me, I'm, I'm eight years, some, some months sober. It's taken me all this time to figure out, I'm not going to use the word that I was thinking of, but that I was really in bad shape. 
I had no clue. I had no clue that I had no social skills. I had no clue that I was so full of myself that I, that I could not get you know, take suggestions from anyone. I had no clue that, that I was in such a bad shape that I just didn't know how to live my life. I'm still, I'm still baffled of the state I was in and that I didn't have a clue. AA has, has, has given me this opportunity to make things right. And it's also given me an opportunity to, to share this and to participate in this. And I always get amazed when I think about AA because I spent 12 years in and out. And when I came this summer around, I had, I had no faith whatsoever that this was going to do anything. If you knew, if you're not so new, the fellowship, that's the bonus. Make sure you get to know people, get some phone numbers and call them people. And it's also our responsibility who are here, you know, that make, make sure that people leave with numbers, that, that, uh, you know, that they get the safety net. But also, because this is my experience, if you have to go somewhere and you don't have a meeting, it's okay. All you have to do is to trust God. Four things I'm gonna shut up soon. Four things I heard a lot. And it was, don't drink. Clean house, trust God, and help us. And for me, that's the mantra. That's what it's all about. And I want to thank you for allowing me to speak. Thank you, Andrew, for for inviting me to speak here. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.